The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Hi, my name is Kelly Karam. Over the years, I have shared my testimony, so many of you may have already heard it. But for those of you who haven't, you may or may not know that I was born and raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. At the age of 21, I met my husband, Chris, and it was through him that I was introduced to the gospel. I was introduced to a real salvation that was based on God's grace, as opposed to a salvation that I had been striving to earn through works. I was introduced to the invitation to receive the righteousness that came from God and what he did on the cross, as opposed to a righteousness that was based on something that I was trying to earn by doing things for him. Looking back, I had an amazing childhood. I had amazing parents who raised my brothers and I to be good people with strong work ethic and people who believed in God. But our faith, however, focused more on the knowledge of God as opposed to the relationship with God. It focused more on the works and the service, things that we could do for him, than what God did for us through his love and through his grace. Through my life, I have lived with two kinds of faith. The first faith was based on works. And that left me living a self-driven life where I strived a lot. I served a lot. I compared myself to others a lot. That led to battles with self-righteous and judgmental attitudes, which then led into being overwhelmed often and self-doubting and having insecurities. I vividly recall a reoccurring night terror that I would have in my first 20 years, and it perfectly symbolized the focus that I had on my works and the lack of trust that I had in my salvation at that time. This reoccurring dream was about Jesus' second coming, and it would always take place on a boat like Noah's Ark. I always found myself trying to make it on board this boat, and when I did, I would hang out on the deck, waiting to hear whether I could stay on the boat or not. The question in my head was always, did I get enough service hours in this month? Did I work hard enough? Did I do enough? If I was allowed to stay on the boat, that meant I did a good job, and obviously I earned my eternal salvation. But I often woke up from those dreams very afraid and fearful. I woke up in a cold sweat. I woke up even more determined to work harder to ensure that I gained that salvation. I was putting trust in myself and my faith as opposed to putting trust in God. After surrendering my life to Jesus, I got to experience a new faith a new faith that was based on grace. 
And that's freed me to live a life that's secure in God's goodness and his love. And that's all because he sent his son to pay for my sin debt. And that sin debt being taken care of meant that my eternal salvation has been taken care of. God's healed those self-righteous, self-imposed wounds that the first faith inflicted. But the scars are still there, and they serve as a reminder of the power of God's redeeming grace. God has done for me what I couldn't do for myself. I daily express deep, deep gratitude for the gift of my new faith and for the unmerited favor that he has given me. He's given me better that, than I deserve in spite of what I deserve. The scripture that comes to my mind is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and I'd like to leave you with that. It's in, from the Amplified Version. For it is by grace, God's remarkable compassion and favor, drawing you to Christ that you've been saved, actually delivered from judgment and given eternal life through faith. And this salvation is not of yourselves, not through your own effort, but it is the undeserved gracious gift of God, not as a result of your works, nor your attempts to keep the law, so that no one will be able to boast or take credit in any way for his salvation. Lord God, we stand before you now in amazement I pray that you would continue to, to deepen our amazement and our gratitude for this tremendous gift that you've given us for free through faith alone that we can know your love, that we can do, that you have done what we could not have done ourselves. We've just sung that you have salvaged us. And I love that word salvaged because it's true. We were, we were broken, we were lost, we, were, we would have been cast away, but you salvaged us. And I thank you for the truth that we can know, that we can know you forever and ever now through Christ. I thank you, I thank you Lord, that we have that hope, um, and we remember again that there are those who have passed away in our church family recently, those who have lost loved ones recently. We think of Grant and Pauline Gilbert, and Grant's mother having passed away, uh, her, uh, her name is Margaret. I thank you, Lord, that, uh, that we can know that whoever's put their faith in you, whoever's put their faith in Christ, is free in Christ. And I thank you that we can know you for all of eternity. Lord, I pray that you would bless the rest of this service for your glory. All of this is for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to hear today's scripture read uh, by Gerishan and Nikki Manuel. Hi, I'm Gerish, and this is my wife, Nikki, and we're going to be reading from Romans 1, verses 8 to 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, 
that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians, and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For it is for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. It's good to uh, hear Girish and Nikki read the scripture to us this morning. And uh, my name is Terry Jank. I'm one of the pastors here, and this morning I get to share the word with you. And um, as we're studying Romans, I last week uh, began uh, introducing the, the book of Romans. And um, you'll see from this slide that we're going through four different sections of Romans, and we're just starting this time with chapters 1 to 4. And so uh, I want to also uh, remind you that um, regardless of who you are and how you found us, if, you've just, if you could turn the volume down just a bit, um, however you found us, um, if you're watching these services and these messages, uh, regardless of your religious background, your upbringing, your worldview, your present lifestyle, your belief or unbelief in God, that is not really uh, any deterrent for you following with us to study this really important book of the New Testament and to study with us. I read recently a, a statistic that said that 20% of people who own Bibles will never read it from cover to cover. And of course, uh, reading the Bible from cover to cover is not the goal in any kind of sense, uh, we are not trying to get to know the Bible of God. We are trying to come to know the God of the Bible. And that's a critical piece for us. When we open up the sacred pages of Scripture, we are really wanting to commune with the living God. We are trying to know Him. And I was thinking this morning as I was getting ready for the message of this old hymn that I grew up uh, learning called Break Thou the Bread of Life. And and uh, that one particular section where it said, Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. And so there is this sense in which when we, when we open up the pages of Scripture, every morning we get our spiritual breakfast. And, and the point of it all is that we would commune with the Lord God himself, who is beyond and in the sacred page. And so <clears throat> that's one of the reasons why we certainly have 
wanted to make, as Doug was sharing earlier in the service, the scripture, sermon scripture studies, uh, the, the notes, the, uh, the helps that are in there. You can go every week. You'll see them updated according to the scripture that we're studying, and hopefully you'll be able to study along with us. Well, um, I want to clarify a goal that we have in this study as well, in any study of the Bible. I was at a conference a few years ago, and I heard a preacher by the name of Robert Smith uh, describe how we should be looking at every Bible text through the lens of the eschaton. Now, what is the eschaton? It's a Greek word. The eschaton is the study of end times, of the end of the age, of... Uh, Looking at the, the book of Romans for us is, is we look through the lens of the final stages of human history as though we are on the brink of eternity. That's the way we want to study <clears throat> the letter of Romans that Paul wrote. And um, the same speaker said that when we study doctrinal sermons, we should um, never be dead sermons. In fact, if I somehow make you go to sleep through a sermon like Romans is going to be, uh, and Romans has its share of doctrine, then perhaps somehow I haven't been doing my job. But um, I don't want to make you yawn. In fact, this same author said that Scripture, doctrinal sermons, uh, should bring us to singing, not yawning. And um, so it shouldn't be like hospital food, which kind of keeps you alive, but it's not much fun. It shouldn't be like that as we study the Word of God, the truth of God. Uh, doctrine should lead to doxology, which is worship, and somehow we need to learn how to do that. The cranial connected to the cardiological, the head and the heart going together, and how important that is. There's not going to be any preachers in heaven but we're all going to be worshipers in heaven. And I need to remind myself of that every time I come to the word of God. That I'm a, I'm a worshiper first and I'm a preacher second. And, and um, these, these have been convicting words for me. I just read this recently. He says, don't go and shepherd on an empty soul. Don't be a pastor on an empty soul. You will not feed God's flock. You will feed on God's flock. And uh, Kevin and I were just talking about this yesterday, the danger, the very potential danger of us somehow feeding on God's flock instead of feeding God's flock, feeding our egos, feeding our, our thoughts about ourselves or, or, or our church or something like that. And it's, it's nothing to do with that. And uh, one of the ways that we can kind of break out of this head game or this idea that we even worship ideas and concepts instead of the God of theology. This is, this is important to get in touch with. And I, I find when I study the Apostle Paul in his letters in the New Testament, he is this incredible balance of head and heart. He was a brilliant man of logic in his mind, but he was an incredibly passionate man in his heart, was on fire. And when we bring these two together, we are more likely going to live out what God calls us to. I think of the parable of the soils. Remember that when Jesus told that the farmer was going out to sow his seed and he, as he was casting the seed, some of it fell on hard path. And that's like those of you who will be listening to this Roman sermon and it'll just get as far as your ears and fall down. And then the second kind of soil that the seed fell on was rocky soil. 
That's the kind of soil or listener, the kind of heart that, that hears the word of God. And it, it, he likes ideas or she likes the ideas and the concepts. It might get into the mind a little bit. But pretty soon it just disappears as soon as the preacher's done talking. The third seed that is thrown out, it falls on the thorny soil. And all the cares of the life take that away. The thorns choke out the good seed. It could be that it's trying to get down to the heart, but it doesn't get there. And then finally, the good soil that receives the word, seed of God, the word of God, and it grows and it bears forth fruit. I think of that this time in the service, this time when the preacher gets up here and starts to open up the Bible and, and talk about things, this time in the service is, is kind of like my job this morning is to get the word of God, the seed of God, to your ears. Your job is to get it from your ears into your mind so that it actually, you understand, you think it through, you, 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 you ruminate on it, you, you get it into your mind. You love God with your mind. And then our job together with trusting in God is to hope and pray and work toward getting it from here, the head game, down into the heart game where I actually believe this word and I change the way I live because of it. That's not just your problem, that's my problem. And we need to work on that every week, I do. And so as we enter this study of Paul again and what he writes in Romans, I'm, I like it that it came from the pen of Paul because Paul was a balance between head and heart. I have mainly two points to make this morning, and I'm really going to go quickly through the first one, which addresses Paul as a pastor, and then the second part really gets into the meat of this text, which is the sweet spot found in verses 15 to 17. <clears throat> So first of all, I have five adjectives that I want to share with you about Paul that describe him as a pastor and a man with a heart for the people he was writing to in Rome. The first word is thankful. Verse 8, he says, <clears throat> First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. The interesting thing about this text is that Paul says, First, but then he never gets to talking about second or third. And I kind of find that funny because sometimes I get wandering away too and I forget about what I was actually talking about. Paul is so excited that the Roman church has such a witness that people that go into Rome and then travel out of Rome, and Rome was the capital, so it was like a hub, they were, they were being talked about all over the world. Their faith was being talked about all over the world. I can't think of anything that would encourage a pastor more. Can you imagine if, if we here at our church were hearing reports coming from all over the place? India, from Bolivia, from Garden Hill, from, from places like Mexico or California. Or, or bring it closer to home. What if they came from your workplace or your school or your neighborhood group? What if those reports were coming back? There'd be nothing that would make us as pastors, the board of our church, more happy than to hear, wow, the faith of our people. Whether it's on a mission trip, a missionary, or whether it's in a neighborhood group, there'd be nothing that would be more exciting than to hear that our faith is impacting our world. 
that every place where we live is somehow this little epicenter of enthusiasm for God. That would be cool. That would give me goosebumps just like this gave Paul goosebumps. The second adjective I want to describe Paul with is prayerful. These reports that he's hearing in verse 8 lead him to pray. In verse 9 he says, God is my witness whom I serve that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Paul believed that the God that he was, was ministering for would bring him into the fruitfulness of the ministry he was given. Third adjective is humble. I see in verses 11 and 12 a humble man. He says, I want to impart some spiritual gift to you when I come. But then he adds, he says, but what I really mean is that you and I, you Roman Christians and me, the Apostle Paul, we would be mutually encouraged. I see humility in the Apostle Paul. I see the personal nature of verse 13. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. I have often intended to come to you, but I've been hindered. He's not making excuses here. Folks, you might have some relatives or family members that, or, or, or friends that make excuses every summer why they can't visit you. <laughs> or you might be the ones that make excuses for why you can't visit somebody else. Paul's not doing that here. Paul really does want to go and see the Rome. He was eager, verse 15, to go to see Rome and to see the, pre- the believers there. And then, finally, I want to say that Paul's responsible. That's another adjective I would give. <clears throat> in verse 13, after the little word that is translated, in order that, he says, I want to come to you in Rome in order that I may reap some harvest among you And I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, and so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. You see, Paul has an obligation on him. He has a sense of responsibility. This gospel that has transformed his life, he is wanting now it to transform others' lives. And he considers anybody a recipient of this gospel. He talks about the barbarians, the northern peoples in Rome, uh, beyond Rome, that uh, were, were uncivilized almost. He talks about the Greeks that were more known for their wisdom, the Gentile peoples. And he says, whether you're wise or foolish, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you're civilized or barbaric, it doesn't matter where you come in the strata of society. Paul says, I want to I tell you the gospel, the good news of Jesus is for you. It should be a bit of a conviction toward us that if we ever look at some other human being in a wrong way, regardless of what they are like, where they come from in the strata of society, um, we need to recognize Jesus loves them. And so Paul is thankful, prayerful, humble, personal, and responsible. And now let's go on to talk about um, the message that Paul was so eager to share with the church in Rome. Now, you're going to be hearing this word gospel. We read it in the gospel of, or in the book of Romans, 60 times. So might as well get used to understanding what does this mean, this word gospel. It means the good news of Jesus. It's the message, the essence of the message of Christianity. It's what Christians have to share. There's nothing really of more value that Christians have to live by and share than the gospel. 
And so Paul, in verses 16 and 17, probably better than any other text in all of his 13 letters, he unpacks what the gospel, this message, is that Christians bring. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very well-known Bible commentator from the last uh, century, uh, spoke and said that these two verses, verses 16 and 17, uh, have greater importance in the whole of Scripture these two verses are the, the most important verses. So that's pretty big to think about. <clears throat> I have five points I want to share about what the gospel comes. And they come, all of them come out of where Paul mentions the word five times in the first 17 verses of this book. <clears throat> and so first of all, chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 9, Paul saw himself as a servant of the gospel. He saw himself as a person who was set apart for the gospel. The word aphorizo means to be set apart. It means that it was actually used in the marking out of boundaries, property lines. Paul says, I was set apart for this gospel, to be the bearer, the proclaimer of this good news about Jesus. Now, you and I are set apart as well. Maybe we're not called apostles, uh, but we are set apart as well to be witnesses and to be sharers of this gospel. Some of the last words that Jesus left the church in Mark chapter 16, verse 15 is, go and preach or proclaim the gospel to every creature. That's to his church, his people, that's us. And so we have this privilege of going out and just as the message of Jesus shaped and changed our lives, we have this upon us to then go and shape and change the lives of others. I read once about Hudson Taylor, the founder of China Inland Mission, and he was, he was talking with some of the people of his day that were, were not as inclined to go out and be missionary in their thinking. He said this, It will not do to say that you have no special call to go to China. With these facts before you and with the command of the Lord Jesus to go and preach the gospel to every creature, you need rather to ascertain whether you have a special call to stay at home. <laughs> that, that's challenging thinking. Indeed, we are all called and set apart to share this message of Jesus wherever he leads us or if he's planted us where we are right now. That's your mission field. And so we are all set apart. First of all, we're set apart to believe the gospel. And then secondly, to share it. Next, I want to share with you in verse 15. I want you to notice in verse 15, Paul says, For I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's eager to preach. Notice he says, to you, Christians, you church of Rome. Now, I want to ask the question, why would Paul be eager to travel hundreds of miles to go to preach to people who already have known the gospel, heard the gospel, and believed in Jesus? I believe there's two reasons, very significant reasons, why Paul wanted to get to Rome and preach the gospel to the Christians and these are the same two reasons why I'm excited about sharing the book of Romans with you, whom I'm assuming mostly are Christians. But as I said earlier, you do not need to be a Christian to study Romans with us. The first reason why I believe Paul's excited to get to Rome and 
preach the gospel to the Christians is because he believes, like I believe, that in many cases those who have come to faith in Jesus have never really had a solid explanation of the gospel, a solid expounding, a foundation to stand on. They've come to faith by the grace of God, yes, but there's much to learn about their faith. And so Paul wants to establish them and strengthen them in the faith of the gospel, deepen them, sharpen them. Our world is bombarding us with philosophies, with unbiblical ideas, with false notions. And we need to be grounded in the truth of God, which is all centered around the the nucleus of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So Paul wanted to establish them. In fact, I am certain, folks, I'm certain that in the coming weeks, some of you will, will be hearing aspects of the gospel message that will probably make you uncomfortable. It'll probably make you squirm. You have a world around you that's telling you a different message. You're buying into some of that message. You're bleeding into some of that message. You're adopting some of that message. It's seeping into your worldview, your belief system, your mind, your heart. You're going to have to pause every so often as we're going through this message in Romans. You're going to have to pause wherever you're sitting. You're going to have to open up your Bible. You're going to have to read that Bible, and you're going to decide, do I believe this? Do I believe this enough to live it? Do I believe it enough to announce it, to share it? You might be tempted to take out a pair of scissors instead, though, and just cut out certain pages of your Bible, even from the book of Romans, chapter 1. So certain sentences, certain verses, chapters maybe. Because they don't line up with your worldview, your way of thinking, your lifestyle. They make you uncomfortable. I hope you don't do that. Several decades ago, John Stott said, All around us, we see Christians and churches relaxing their grip and their grasp on the gospel fumbling it like a football and in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. We must be a people that do not fumble the gospel. It is the basis of life, as we're going to see in just a minute. A second reason why Paul was eager to go to Rome and preach the gospel and why I am so excited about sharing this message of Romans with you who are following us is because If you'll notice in the New Testament, the primary way that the message gets out is not by one big preacher, one big event, one mass evangelism, but by individual Christians sharing it in their realms of relationship. And Paul knew that the primary way Jesus was going to become known in Rome was through the Roman Christians. He had no illusion Paul the Apostle, who had done mass evangelism in all kinds of other cities, he had no illusion that he was going to march into Rome, he was going to go into the Colosseum, and he was going to have thousands of people listening to him. It's not in his head. Never talks about that, never dreamed of that. Paul got to Rome, but you know how he got there? He got there, he preached the gospel to the Christians, he shared, he deepened them in the faith, and guess what else? 
He was chained to a Roman soldier 24-7 under house arrest when he got there. And guess how he shared the gospel? To one Roman soldier at a time. They probably dreaded those shifts with Paul the apostle. (laughs) And eventually he got the, the, the people talking about Jesus so that even some in Caesar's household started to know about Jesus. If you want to know the methodology of Jesus to grow the church, to get his kingdom growing, just look at how Jesus did it. He prayerfully selected 12 men and started sharing one-on-one with them. And that's how God asks us to do it as well. And so he equipped his followers and then he sent them his Holy Spirit and they changed the world. We can't improve on the methodology of Jesus. And so I believe that the primary way of growing our church, growing the kingdom of God in the city of Winnipeg, is not by this Sunday morning service. It's not by online preaching and services. It's not the way it's going to happen. It's going to happen because individual Christians like you, where you work, where you live, in your neighborhood, at your school, that's where Jesus will be made known. And it'll come incarnate. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, first in Jesus, but also in every one of us wherever we live in a real relationship, really showing Jesus to the world. And so if we're going to do that, if we're going to be the message of Jesus living and embodied to the people that God's put in our lives, we better not be ashamed of that message. We better be eager to share it like Paul was. And that leads me to verse 16. Paul says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. First for the Jew chronologically and then for the Greeks, the Gentile peoples like you and I. The Greek word for power here, dunamis, is the word, the source of our our word dynamite or dynamic. And uh, the inventor of dynamite, actually, Nobel, in 1867, took the name of dynamite from the same Greek word that Paul uses here to describe the power of the gospel. When the gospel is shared, it's explosive, it's powerful, it changes lives. Oswald J. Smith, the founder of People's Church in Toronto, wrote a, a biography called Fire in My Bones. And he says, wherever I go, I love to leave the gospel so that there will be an explosion and someone will get saved. And so this word salvation in verse 16 also is, is the basic idea of deliverance, of being rescued from something. The power of God alone can rescue people from sin, addiction, self-orientation from ultimately the judgment of God at the end of the age, from eternal separation from God. And the reason that Paul is not ashamed of this gospel is because he is absolutely convinced that it radically transformed his life and restored him to really relationship with God. And it will do the same for anybody that will receive it by faith. So Paul was not ashamed. There were many that were ashamed in the first century. In fact, we read in the scriptures and beyond scripture in the history books, we read about ancient pagans 
that lived during the time of the first century that mocked Christians for their beliefs. It was foolishness to them. The Greek mind had a whole pantheon of gods. The mythical gods of the Greek pantheon were, were not like Jesus. They were powerful. They were detached. They were up there. They didn't mess around with human emotion. The idea of coming down to live, to become a man, to live among us, to ultimately go to the cross and die on the cross, this was, this was stupidity to the Greek mindset. That's why so many times it says it was a stumbling block to the Jews and it was foolishness to the Gentiles. In some of the ancient ruins of Rome, archaeologists have uncovered a painting. And this painting is of a slave that was bowing before a cross. Bowing before a cross, and in this painting, the, on the cross is a donkey crucified. And the caption underneath this painting of a man bowing to the cross with a donkey crucified on it says this, Alexamenos worships his God. It was a mock on the Christian faith. What a stupid thing to worship a crucified God. It was foolishness to them. It's offensive to many of the proud. This same kind of offense of the cross, this same foolishness that accompanies our faith, was with George Whitfield when he was this great revivalist preacher in the 18th century, 19th century. He was, sorry, 18th century. He was ridiculed constantly by the polite society of London. In fact, uh, they would pick on him because he apparently had a, a squint in one eye. Just He couldn't stop blinking, squinting in one eye. And so they called him Mr. Squintum. And they'd say to each other in jest, they'd say, hey, let's go out to the fields tonight and listen to the preacher, Mr. Squintum. And they mocked him. As did the, his contemporaries, John and Charles Wesley. Do you know that John and Charles Wesley, their own family mocked them in their preaching? Their mother the mother of John and Charles Wesley said this. said, why must you make such fools of yourselves? Why can't you be like the other preachers? You just have a mob of common, ignorant people following you. You will get them in Kennington, in Moorfields, in Tottenham Court Road. But why? You see, their mother could not understand the gospel. She stumbled over it. And they would respond to their mother, to their relatives, and they would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of anyone and everyone who believes. If it hasn't come already to your door, it will come a day when you have to decide whether you are going to be ashamed of being a follower of Jesus. You're going to have to decide whether you are ashamed of being a follower of Jesus. I hope when that day comes, you've made the decision. Like Paul, you're not ashamed. 
The next thing I want you to, to hear about what Paul says about the message of the gospel, he says that it reveals God's righteousness. That's the core of the gospel. In verse 17, Paul says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from first to last, or from faith for faith, as it is written, the just shall live, the righteous shall live by faith. I want you to see that there is a very important word in the Greek text that comes out in the English text. And if you have your Bible open, you'll notice in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then a little later on it says, For in the gospel the power of God is revealed for salvation. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now there's three fours that are very important. And it's a, it's a, it's a, one, it's a one statement that's being encapsulated here. They all are connected. And Paul is saying that the righteousness of God is the center of the gospel that I'm not ashamed of. Now, this word righteousness is found 35 times in Romans, and the, the phrase righteousness of God is found eight times. Kevin referred to one earlier in chapter 3 of Romans. It could be rendered the righteousness from God as well. It is God's righteousness that is imparted to us. And so righteousness from God or of God means at least three things in this passage. It means, number one, that it is the character of God. God is altogether righteous, pure, and holy. It refers to his character, the righteousness from God. Secondly, it refers to the activity of God. Everything that God does is the righteousness of God. It is, he is incapable of doing anything wrong. Everything he does is righteous, pure, holy, and right. Never makes a mistake. And then thirdly, the righteousness of God refers to the gift that he gives to undeserving sinners so that they might believe and be restored through his righteousness. Not theirs, but his. As we mentioned last week, I referred a little bit to the, the, the reformer Martin Luther and the, the struggle he faced with this term, the righteousness of God, found in Romans. <clears throat> he saw it as a description of God's character, of God's standard, this one in, in, in whom is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And he thought to himself, this is a curse, that God would put such a standard upon us and not require us, not understand that we cannot ever live up to that. And so <clears throat> he said there was no way of appeasing this God, no way of being friends with this God, no way of being restored to this God. He felt that it was a curse, that the actual righteousness of God stood in the way of salvation. It didn't actually open the door to salvation. That's how Martin Luther saw it. That's how he read it. And then one day the light dawned, and here, here's what he wrote. He said, I saw it and I wished always that God had not made the gospel known because of this fuller revelation of the righteousness of God. It seemed to me utterly hopeless and helpless. I did not know what to do. And then the light dawned and he came to see that this righteousness of God is not just a righteousness that comes down from God to us. 
But it is a righteousness which, when it is believed on by faith, accomplishes something in the heart, in the soul of every human that believes, and it returns back to God. It comes down from God. It does its work in purifying our souls who believe, and it goes back up to God as we who are saved and righteous before God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it just, Martin Luther just, it flung open the doors of glory. And Martin Luther knew he believed in this God and in this righteousness that satisfied the just demands of a holy God. And then, similarly, Paul says in verse 17 that this this righteousness from God is believed. It is from faith to faith, or it is from first to last by faith. This righteousness that is from God. Paul was, first of all, Paul was set apart to preach the gospel. He was eager to preach the gospel. He was not ashamed of the gospel. He believed that the gospel revealed the blessed righteousness of God. And finally, he he believed that it was from the very first to the end, it was all about faith. Just trusting in God to accomplish what only God could accomplish in the lives of sinful humans. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. And so that causes many to stumble. You know, it's a pure gospel, though. And if the gospel is going to be remaining pure, it has to be it has to be with no other, no other contribution, nothing that I or you can give to make us more acceptable to God. God is satisfied with his own righteousness that is believed on by faith, received with Jesus Christ, and given as a free gift. Now, if you want to mess with the recipe of God's pure gospel, you will be in trouble. Because if it is not a pure gospel... It is no longer a powerful gospel. What if we were to use the idea of dynamite? What if we were to think about if you took gunpowder and mixed gunpowder with sand, you would no longer have the explosive that is needed in dynamite. And similarly, if you take your the righteousness of God and you feel that you need to add to it some of your good works and your righteousness and all the things that you could bring... Well, it is no longer a powerful gospel, and therefore it has no power to save like the pure gospel, as Kelly shared in her testimony clearly. And so it is, it is a message of pure gospel, and if the power of the gospel is going to be kept, it has to be pure. Then it can wash your soul, it can deliver you from your demons, It can reserve you a place in heaven. It can forgive your sin. That's a pure gospel. I think about the old hymn. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. George Whitfield, I referenced earlier, he said, 
Other men might be able to preach the gospel better than I can, but they will not preach a better gospel. (laughs) And there is no better gospel. It's a pure and powerful gospel when it's depending on Christ alone. Do you see this? Do you see the gospel? Do you understand the gospel in your mind? Do you receive it and believe on it in your heart? Do you thank God for this gospel? Do you you know of others that have to hear the gospel? Are you praying for someone who is dead to the gospel so far? You could be a game changer for somebody else. If you were to visit Park Street Church in Boston, there is a bronze plaque with the inscription on it that says this, Joseph S. Olszewski, storekeeper, second class, United States Coast Guard, lost February 3rd, 1943, North Atlantic. The story behind that plaque is found in a book by Alan Emery called A Turtle on a Fence Post. And it was the day after Pearl Harbor when, like thousands of Americans, Alan Emery, the author of that book, enlisted and was assigned to the Coast Guard in his hometown of Boston. He was given the job of a quartermaster guarding one of the wharfs. One Friday, he was in his bunk resting, and one of his new acquaintances named Joseph Oleski came in dressed immaculately, hat squared away, white cuffs showing, shoes spit shine, gave a big smile to Emery, and Emery said, what's the occasion? And he said excitedly that at the, at the USO, the United Service Organization the previous night, this really good-looking, wealthy girl had invited him to spend the weekend at her apartment on Beacon Hill in Boston. She was going to take him to the opera. They were going to go to her place. They were going to listen to records. They were going to drink and party all weekend. And he didn't have to be back on the ship until 0700 on Monday morning. He said, this is going to be the greatest weekend of my life. And Emery simply responded with one sentence. He said, I'm going to be praying for you. Joe walked out the door, and within seconds, he was back in, and he said, what did you say? He said, I'm going to be praying for you. Joe responded by saying, why in the world would you be praying for me when I'm about to go out and have the best time of my life? And Alan Emery responded by saying, because Joe, Monday morning you'll be back on board the ship and you will not be the same person that you are tonight. Sin leaves its mark. Joseph swore at Emery, walked out the door, and went into the night. Alan was true to his word and began to pray for Joe as he prepared for guard duty. And as he went out into the wharf and started to guard the wharf that evening, he was a little bit surprised to see an agitated Joe appear into the lamppost light on the wharf. He said, how can you have a good time when someone's praying for you? You've ruined my weekend, I canceled my date, and I've been waiting until I found you because I need you to tell me how I can find God. God had been preparing Joe's heart. That night, Joseph Valeski heard for the first time about the good news of Jesus, what Jesus did to forgive him of sin. And he believed. 
He knew that he was a sinner, but he didn't realize he was such a beloved sinner by a God who created him and who sent Christ to die for him. The change was immediate. He began to attend this church, Park Street Church. He started inviting his buddies into the church service. He started praying with as many people as he could find. He, he grew under the teaching of Dr. Harold Ockengay. And then a little while later, on February the 1st, 1943, he volunteered to, for, for sea duty on a ship, a minesweeper headed for Iceland. And just a few days out of New York City, a torpedo found its mark on the ship. And the, the, the vessel was sunk, killing him. But do you know something? Do you know something about Joseph Oleski? Eternity is different for him because he put his faith in Jesus Christ. Eternity is different for Joseph Oleski because someone shared the good news of Jesus with him. Eternity is different for Joseph Oleski because someone prayed for him. Someone took it upon themselves to confront him. Someone was bold enough to call him out. Eternity is different for Joseph Oleski mostly, though, because God provided a way for sinners like Joseph and like you and I to be forgiven. Friends, that is the core of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the message that we need to believe. That is the message that, that we need God for. Rob, uh, Frederick Robertson said this, We are too much haunted by ourselves, projecting the central shadow of self on everything around us. And then comes the gospel to rescue us from this selfishness. Redemption is this. To forget yourself in God. And so I ask you, do you understand what has been done for you? What are you waiting for? Believe it. Be changed. And let God use you to change the lives of many others. Lord God, all praise to you. I thank you for meeting us here this morning. I thank you for meeting us where we are. I thank you for saving us when we've asked we thank you for what you've given us. We thank you that it's your grace and because of your mercy that you've given us the grace to fear and that by your grace our fears were relieved. Thank you for showing us our sin that we knew that we needed you. Thank you for showing us our brokenness that we needed to be healed. And thank you for showing us your son that we knew whose name on whom to call. We give you our praise, and I pray that you bless each one as we, as we conclude this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day.